Okay, uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us and welcome to the ZSLEC uh, uh, Festival uh, event on uh, Can Be Ever Inside Shape uh, Policy Making uh, Around the World. Um, uh, the event has been hosted by the LSE Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. I'm Matteo Verizzi, I'm Associate Professor of Behavioral Science at, uh, at the department and co-director of the uh, Executive Master in uh, Behavioral Science. Uh, I'm organizing this event with uh, Chiara Sotis from the uh, Department of Geography and Environment and uh, uh, with uh, Rebecca Lee, who is the event manager. Please uh, let me thank and welcome the uh, four wonderful speakers from uh, tonight. Uh, is uh, Professor uh, Liam Delaney from the University uh, uh, College Dublin, uh, Dr. Mark Casoro from the LSE Department of Manager, uh, Dr. Adam Oliver from the LSE uh, Department of Social Policy, and Dr. Yes Sanders from the uh, LSE Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. Before uh, going and presenting them in greater detail, let me allow a few words uh, in, in order to introduce the event. Uh, the uh, idea of the event is that the speakers will uh, reflect on a recent trend. Uh, in the last decade, um, 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 behavioral insights uh, from behavioral science, that is economics and behavioral economics and psychology, has been uh, um, increasingly employed in uh, uh, informing decision making by policymakers. Uh, the um, uh, London actually uh, has uh, set up this trend uh, since the, the 2010 uh, when the um, behavior and science team, the BIT, has been uh, established within the cabinet office. Uh, there are representatives of the BIT here uh, tonight, uh, I think. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and since then, behavior uh, uh, units have been uh, launched in uh, hundreds of public institutions, not just government, but also uh, uh, government and department, public regulators, also uh, international institutions. And um, the uh, LSE has been uh, playing a, a part in this trend. Uh, for example, the current head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science uh, was originally seconded within the cabinet office as the uh, academic advisor of the DRT. And on the teaching side, LSE is uh, running uh, the only uh, executive uh, master program in behavioral science in this area, which is training uh, the future uh, leaders of behavioral units around the world. And of course, on the research side, uh, uh, as you see, uh, the LSE is uh, also uh, has a broad range of behavioral expertise that is routinely applied to uh, um, a policy project, uh, sometimes in, uh, in partnership with the, with the BIT or other behavioral units. So the speakers will uh, discuss uh, this trend uh, in the next uh, hour. Uh, the plan is that each of the speakers will give you a short talk, uh, and then at the end we'll have uh, uh, time to take questions from the audience. Uh, the first uh, speaker for tonight is uh, uh, Professor uh, Liam Dilani. Uh, 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 Liam is a, 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 a professor of economics at University College Dublin and also visiting professor of economics at Stirling University. Uh, he is a former uh, Fulbright and Marie Curie uh, Fellow uh, in a, and has been a deputy director of, uh, uh, UCD, of the UCD Gary Institute and also vice dean of the Stirling uh, 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 Management.
Christian school. Uh, Liam has worked at the intersection of economics and psychology for all his career and has published extensively in both economic and psychology journal. He is in particular interested in the measurement foundation of behavioral welfare economics and is currently directing the Center for Behavioral Science and Policy at the UCD Gary Institute. Also, as it is now official, Liam will uh, join LSE in the next uh, uh, new academic year uh, to become professor and editor department of the LSE uh, Department of Psychology and Behavioral Science. So thank you very much, Liam, and welcome to the LSE. So I hope everyone's uh, uh, good and thank you very much for coming out. So I'm going to talk a little about the proliferation really of behaviour science uh, across public policy in the last uh, 10 years and talk about some issues uh, around, around ethics and sort of mainstreaming of this area in practice. Um, those of you who've unfortunately had to be tortured by me and LSE over the last couple of years giving lectures on the history and the ethical foundations of this will know I, I don't think this is necessarily a new thing. I mean, there's, there's, uh, go back to the 1950s, you'll see several articles about the role of the behavioral sciences and its emergence uh, with big data, people like Herbert Simon, and indeed, if you go back to the Scottish Enlightenment, you'll see many projects that uh, look similar to, what, to what, uh, are, what's happening today. I do think what's different uh, in, is the unification is intensive. I don't think we've seen something like this, uh, a sort of merger of psychology, economics, uh, law, I, I, I claim I don't think we've seen anything like this since uh, the Scottish Enlightenment in terms of its scale and the extent to which it's proliferating into areas of practice and I think it is changing aspects of our world in ways that are uh, have been relatively dramatic, relatively recent and require quite a lot of thought. Uh, I'm going to speak tonight maybe on one, on one issue that I want to leave in there about how we start handling some of the complicated issues that arise from ethics when we start seeing behavioural scientists go into areas where wouldn't necessarily have always been. I and mean, we've already got obviously very deep literatures on medical ethics and things like that around organ donation, but what do you do when you've got suddenly whole behavioral teams arising in areas like um, a, a, a revenue um, and other, and other government departments where, where we're still teasing through really uh, the implications of all of these types of things. Uh, this is from Faisal Nauru in the OECD. Um, if, you're, if you're a student uh, who studies behavioural science and psychology, the good news is you have a lot of places to apply for jobs these days. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, this has been um, many of these agencies, so these are just uh, public sector and regulatory agencies. Uh, uh, there's lists now with literally hundreds of uh, companies that are also constructing uh, groups in this. So as I said, some of this arises from uh, very different uh, philosophical and psychological traditions. Uh, some of this is older than the others. I think really uh, since Callum and Tversky in the work of Sunstein and Thaler, certainly the publication of Nudge had a, a very dramatic influence on the on the interest in policymakers from this. I think um, I think that's yours. <laughs> 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 So it, it captured the attention in many different ways, and there's a lot of discussion about uh, political aspects of that, how it was formed, and so on and so forth. I think uh, what has emerged is not a fad. This is not something that is going to go away in a year or two. I've used the phrase before. It might be a big mistake, but that's different from a fad. <laughs> this is something that's there. Uh, and I, I, I would contend that there's a lot of potential upside to this, having people trained in understanding human behavior. Uh, uh, economists and lawyers, people like myself who work in economics, who traditionally had a very heavy influence in areas like regulation and so on, and traditionally didn't really pay much attention to uh, empirical observations about how people made decisions. So I think on that side, it's a very positive thing. 
that we're training people to go into these areas with equipped with tools to, to understand human behaviour and to integrate it into public policy. I think the potential for it to contribute to human welfare uh, is vast, but we shouldn't be afraid to deal with all of the complicated issues that arise when you, when you have people training in these areas. Uh, and I am thinking about the potential for behavioural science to be used in all sorts of different ways, uh, both in terms of nudging people towards positive welfare outcomes. I think if you look at pension offer enrolment in the UK, uh, by most accounts that has been a success. People uh, claim often that they want to have more help in deciding on financial outcomes. This was something that has worked quite well. Opt-out rates have been very low. Uh, people are quite satisfied that the government is, has participated in doing this type of thing. I think it's a shining example of how this approach might work. Uh, and you can also think of ways in which uh, this approach could be used to manipulate people, uh, ways it could be done in a non-transparent way and so on and so forth. I've sat through rooms with people from various disciplines where we spent three days debating different definitions of what libertarian means. Uh, it's fascinating stuff, uh, but I do think we also need to think pragmatically uh, how we deal with some of these issues. Some, some of that can come from a deep discussion of philosophy. What we've tried to do is to try to come up with something. So we've had frameworks like Mindspace that Paul Dolan and others contributed to, uh, which is an acronym for how you influence behaviour, and we've tried to come up with something simpler that allows you to, simpler that allows you to look at the sort of various ethical dimensions. So I haven't got much time, so I'm just going to put it out there so to influence some of the discussion tonight. I think those of us that work in this area, those of us that are involved in randomised trials in government, those that are formulating behaviour units within regulators and so on, I believe should think about things like fairness, uh, what are the redistributive impacts of some of the things that we're doing, openness, how do we engage with the public to let them know what we're doing in a way that's not, not manipulative, respect for people's privacy, respect for people's autonomy, Looking at the goals of this, we need to have very clear ideas about what we're actually trying to do when we're nudging. Nudging should be uh, helping people to make decisions that they themselves would value. And we need to think about that a lot. We need to look at opinion. There can be either majorities of people who disagree with some of these things, or importantly, dissenting minorities who might disagree. How do we incorporate those views? How do we look at other options? And to what extent might nudging, in some cases, be a distraction from other larger mandatory options in areas like climate change or financial uh, regulation. I don't think it is, in, in essentially, but I do think there's a risk that that could happen if we don't think about it. And what we call delegation. Who, who should do this? What skills should you have to do this? What right do you have to do this? If you are setting yourself up as a nudge agent, if you're setting yourself up as a behavioural scientist in public policy, from where do you derive that authority? To whom are you accountable? Uh, it hears me kicking the table, sorry, that was a bit dramatic, that was accidental, that wasn't for emphasis. How dare you, no people, no, no, uh, I should have just let that one go. So those are, those are the things I'd like to just push forward into, into, into the, tonight's discussion. We've got a website for it, uh, we encourage voluntary self-reflection, so I put slides, reading lists, all of that type of stuff, and we produce this nice graphic, which I hope is, is, is how we think about it now. You know, there is a real potential. We've got now tens of thousands of people working in this area across the world, people training in it, um, both directly and indirectly. There's a real potential to improve human welfare with some of these things, and also a real strong interest to at least self-reflect on the ethical issues. So that's my contribution. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Liam. Uh, the next speaker is uh, uh, Barbara Fasolo. Barbara is Associate Professor of Behavioral Science in the LSE Department of Management and is Head of the Behavioral Research Lab. Barbara studies how people make decisions that involve risk, trade-off, and complexity, and is interested in choice architecture that helps good uh, decision-making. Good evening. <laughs>
Thank you. Good evening. You, uh, you know immediately that I'm not as fast as Liam. I am Italian. <laughs> and I need to come uh, to disclose right away that my family comes from the part of northern Italy where normally I get lots of interest because of the lakes and I'm getting interest because are they close <laughs> to the red lockdown areas? And the answer is yes, they're close. They're not in it. Uh, they're close. And this year, for the first time, Thanks to Valentina, who's sitting right there, thank you. I have decided to actually achieve my lifetime dream, which uh, was basically to go chase the Northern Lights. And I got engaged for weeks in the math of the risk and uncertainty of chasing the Northern Lights and metrics, and I disappointed my family. I didn't go for half-term to Italy, which is great, because I'm here. Otherwise, I would be quarantined. I actually did get a message saying, are you sure I didn't go? Otherwise, I could not work. Uh, but I, I decided to take uh, a risk, and I'm giving a risky talk because I will talk about the coronavirus in my next five minutes because it's a great uh, occasion for me to draw a couple of behavioral insights that I gathered um, in my experience as a behavioral decision scientist and in secondment for three years between 2009 and 2012 at the European Medicines Agency where the job started as, let's see how to improve the transparency, consistency of regulators' decisions about drugs, and H1N1, swine flu, happened. So we basically diverted all our attention to that at the beginning. Um, so Dick Thaler uh, will come back, Mindy Kahneman, and I'm sure that Thaler is always there. <laughs> um, so that's uh, me. Now, I'd like to start um, by getting us back, not 10 years as Matteo said, but 20 years. Uh, University of Chicago lab, their um, participants were randomly assigned to several conditions, but particularly think of two. In one condition, participants were said that as part of their experiment, they could have a 1% chance of having a short, painful, but not dangerous electrical shock. In another condition, they were told the same, but with a 99% chance of having the electrical shock. As in any experiment, you get given money, they had an allotment of money, they were asked, how much money would you like to pay to avoid the risk of having a 1% chance or a 99% chance of electrical shock? Here's what people said, the University of Chicago students, in the 1% chance electrical shock. $7. Now the question is, what happens in the 99% chance where basically you're certain to get shocked? Okay, it's not dangerous, but it's painful. You have a number in your head. If you're a University of Chicago student, it's very smart. That's where Dick Feller comes back. He's from Chicago. And it wasn't 99 times larger. It wasn't 50 times larger. It was $3 more. <laughs> So this is a bias, and yet we'll talk to you about bias later, but it's called probability neglect. And if there's something I want you to take out of my talk, is that this predicts how people are reacting right now. They're reacting, even when they say everywhere that the coronavirus right now, the reports are about worst-case scenario. At the time of H1N1, we had a worst-case scenario of 65,000 people. 360 actually died. The expected value was about right. But people didn't take into account the probability. Now, we are designed, um, you mentioned Kahneman, you mentioned Tversky, our mindware is designed to make mistakes like this. 
probability neglect. But we also have another system, which is not automatic and biased, which is system two, uh, using the analogy of Kahneman, which instead is able to produce analytics, you know, numbers. That's what we do as experts. Epidemiologists have produced a nice table of case fatality rates that mainly gravitates around 0.1, 0.2. For people like us, we're active. I've got no virus, we we're, we're actually are able to function and we have a good immune system. But we don't think it, and we actually think, we're gonna die, we're all gonna die. We are dying already. And I don't wanna laugh only, uh, I want to make a bit of fun, which helps, but because if we don't correct this, the risk is even harder. I, was, I worked for a couple of years in the center led by Guy Gerenzer, who's a behavioral scientist in Germany, and he found out that after 9-11, 1,500 more people died out of a fear of flying planes and taking two cars in car accidents. We found the same in London in 2005, after 2005, independently, a team led by us uh, at LSE and a team led by Peter Ayton at City. 214 extra people died on the roads, avoiding the tube and taking the bicycle. I am a cyclist. I cycled even halfway through here. So I, I did the same. Actually, did worse about the scooter. Um, it's, relevant, it's relevant because in a survey that we conducted last weekend with an LSE fellow, we found that um, the coronavirus is, as, is considered as risky as terrorism right now. So what to do? And here's what I my if you instead come to my lectures, you gotta do stuff. So take any two things quickly. For instance, this is my phone, this is my wallet. And if you, put it in, if you put the two objects on the palms of your hands, you don't want to do it now, Paul. Um, <laughs> you can, what I want you to do is just nod if you feel and you really know which one of the two is lightest. You're not even, well, you do have it. Thank you. Some of you are doing it <laughs> just below. Thank you. Um, so that ability that we have to immediately detect differences when we're in a meeting, we immediately detect if somebody is saying something that we agree with or don't, is what we can exploit. And we can design interventions to help people make better decisions and help us. Here's what, um, what we've done for the London bombings. We created many different interventions, but in particular one where we compared the number of fatalities out of taking the underground, the bus, the scooters, bikes. That's the, that's the thing right there. And that, seeing that helped most people choose what was best for themselves, as, um, as Leon was saying, compared to other stuff like reminding them what the government was doing, security measures. So there's lots we can do, and um, there's lots we can do to control our lives. I do hope that you're not more alarmed about the coronavirus than you were at the, you know, already. Media is doing that for us. But you can, there's a lot you can do to control your lives for the decisions that we make. And the rest really just happens, right? So that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. Um, and the next speaker is uh, uh, Dr. Adam Oliver from the LSE Department of Social Policy. Uh, Adam is a behavioral economist and behavioral public policy analyst uh, at the LSE. 
and the, as I edited the uh, book Behavioral uh, Public Policy and uh, also uh, the books The Origins of Behavioral Public Policy and the Reciprocity and the Art of Public Policy. He also edits the journal Behavioral uh, 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 Public Policy. <laughs> is, uh, 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 in September 2020, Adam is organizing at LSC uh, the first international uh, conference on Behavioral Public Policy. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have Adam. Thank you. Thanks. You know, you should uh, save your applause until the end. Uh, <laughs> minimise the possibility of that. Um, yeah, so when I spoke to Matteo about this event, he said to me, um, you know, maybe say a few words about the things that the other people do, regarding behavioural public policy, and then talk uh, you know, for a few minutes about what you think is the most uh, appropriate approach, according to your view, about the future of behavioural public policy. It's just mentioned a few of the things that I already said, so you just stole off. <laughs> um, but he did mention that we have this, um, this journal now that we established with Cambridge University Press uh, a couple of years ago, and I did that with Cat uh, Singh and George Akhiloff, it's called Behavioral Public Policy, and that's all open access. on the field, developments in the field. Um, the term behavioral public policy actually, I think, uh, as far as I know, it was invented at the LSE. Uh, as Liam says, the, the general approach, of course, has a very, very long history. But the actual term, behavioral policy, was, I think, invented in a meeting that we had uh, at the LSE about 10 years ago when we were trying to think of a name for a new postgraduate course that we were developing that used behavioral insights and considered behavioral insights and its relevance for public policy. Uh, and Mara Aroldi, I think, came up with a term behavioral. She's, she's out of Oxford, and then she moved to Switzerland. Uh, she might regret that now, I suppose. Mm -hmm. but, um, she, she came up with the term behavioral public policy. So I think that this is the very sort of uh, one of the epicenters for this, uh, for this new field. Okay, so we've got the journal. Matteo mentioned we've got this new, um, this new annual conference. So we've developed a annual international behavioral public policy conference. The first one's going to be at the LSE in September. Liam was supposed to be organising one in, in Dublin, but then I found out he's moving here. So he'll organise another one here, who knows? Um, uh, uh, we'll see about that. The third thing I wanted to mention, uh, just to, around developments in behavioural public policy, is along with the journal um, and with the uh, annual conference, we're establishing a behavioural public policy uh, association, an international mm. behavioral public policy association, mm. and Liam also sits on the, all sits on the board of that, and I've just got to get my act together to try to get somebody to develop a website from me around that, but that's going to happen. Okay, so just moving track a little bit then for a couple of minutes, um, I just wanted to give my view on what I think is the most appropriate way forward for behavioral pu public policy, uh, you know, over the next 10 years maybe, and beyond, perhaps. Um, and this is going to be controversial, but personally, I I don't quite believe I don't believe that the paternalistic approach in behavioural public policy, which is dominated behavioural public policy, is the right way forward from my own perspective. Now, there's lots and lots of people, of course, that have developed behavioural public policy frameworks that are essentially paternalistic. Right? So they basically put forward policies where they argue that the intervention, the policy intervention, will be beneficial for those people that are specifically targeted for that intervention. That's the notion of being paternalistic. So most policy, libertarian paternalism, is a form of 
Paternalism, of course, is a libertarian paternalism. Um, Peter, John here at the front, he's developed a, an approach called nurture policy, it's a paternalistic approach as far as I can see. It, it, it focuses on the demand side, basically. Individual citizens are kind of recognised that they make these mistakes in their automatic decision-making sometimes uh, that harm themselves, and therefore we should be trying to think of interventions such that these individuals perhaps make better decisions for themselves. That's the, that's the, that's the notion of the, these approaches. That's the underlying sort of ethos, I suppose, of these dominant frameworks in behavioral public policy. There's others, of course, there's the boosting framework that's associated with Gigarenta, who uh, Barbara's worked uh, with in, in Berlin. The demand side approaches, right? And I fully respect the people that work within these fields. In fact, most of them, most of the advocates in these fields, and well, not most of them, but a lot of them are good friends of mine, and I respect what they do. But it's not the approach that I quite buy into myself because I'm not really a paternalist. So it seems to me that often the reason why people that work in these fields justify <coughs> paternalistic approaches because they believe that these behavioral influences are leading people to make mistakes. Why are they making mistakes? Well, they come back and they argue that, well, people are not doing what they really ought to be doing. What ought they be doing then? Well, they say, well, yeah, they should be trying to maximize utility or maximize welfare or happiness in some sense. That's the normative objective. With much of behavioral economics, most of behavioral economists believe that we still should be maximizing utility. Uh, in common with standard economic theory, they just assume, they just uh, believe that people make mistakes, and they don't. In their actual choices, often maximize utility. But they still believe that as a normative direction. Now, for me, I'm not so sure about whether that's the appropriate normative direction for everybody. I don't know what the appropriate normative direction for all of you in this room is. I don't know what you think you ought to be doing in your lives. I don't assume that you all ought to, ought to believe, or ought, that you all believe that you ought to be maximizing utility. If you were trying to maximize your utility or your happiness, why would you be sitting here listening to me now? <laughs> Right, so I think people have other normative goals in their life. Right? And it might be that these behavioural influences, I don't necessarily call them biases, I call them influences, they're leading people towards their own personal normative goals a lot of the time. So for me personally, I would let people get on with it pretty much in their own lives. But with the important caveat that um, I do believe that the behavioural insight of reciprocity, the notion that human beings give and take, rather than just give as assumed by pure altruism, or just take <coughs> as is often assumed in standard rational choice theory or the standard models of economics, right? Neoclassical approaches to economics. I think that those notions of just give and just take are often misguided and that often people actually are reciprocators, they give and take. And they give and take because this is an important factor that's evolved <coughs> to benefit groups, and by extension, to benefit the individuals that comprise groups. So my first, what do you call it, my first term of arm of my own behavioral public policy, Liam's own, this all before, so it's probably bored with it, but my first arm would be to try to design institutions or design our environments such that people are more likely to act reciprocally. That we try to crowd out the selfish egoism, and that we try to crowd it, crowd in reciprocal actions. Okay, so I'm saying that we give people large degrees of freedom. I believe in freedom, really. I don't like to be told what to do, and therefore I don't think everybody 
else ought to be told necessarily what to do much of the time. <laughs> I value all time. So uh, I let people get on with it, develop institutions to encourage reciprocity. But with that, there's a recognition that if you give people a lot of freedom, there are certain individuals or organizations and institutions that may use that freedom inappropriately. Right? They may use their freedom to essentially try to impose harms on other people. And one of the ways in which they can impose harms is when you look at the supply side, rather than the demand side, you look at the supply side. So this might be industry, for instance. And it might be that implicitly, um, many people within an industry, uh, many people within the commercial sector, and maybe within the public sector services as well, and beyond those two services as private individuals, know how to use behavioral insights implicitly in order to distort the exchange relationship to benefit themselves. Right, so for example, a payday loan company may know implicitly that by making the costs of repayment less salient, a behavioral influence, and emphasizing the joys of spending, harms the exchange relationship between the payday loan company and the payday loan customers. It may harm that relationship such that the demand side purchases more of those particular services and products than they otherwise would be, which could potentially impose harms on those citizens. So I would say that rather than try to manipulate or steer the demand side towards mm. sensible behaviors, we should identify those circumstances when the supply side is essentially imposing unacceptable harms on the demand side, and then we have an intellectual justification for regulating the behaviors of the supply side. So that's what I that's my second arm. So my two arms, behavioral public policies, encourage reciprocity, let people get on with it, but regulate against those who would impose behaviorally informed harms. Okay. And the last speaker for today is uh, Dr. Yet Sanders. Um, Yet uh, worked as a principal uh, a behavioral insight advisor at public health in England, is now um, uh, assistant professor in the of psychology and behavioral science. Um, she uh, likes finding patterns uh, to change behavior uh, for social good, with a particular interest in uh, time, health, and well being. Also, yet is uh, organizing in April 2020 is hosting uh, at LSE the annual cross governmental conference on behavioral science. Thank you, yet to join. came here to get an answer to the question as to can behavioral science shape policymaking around the world. My, my view is, is pretty clear on that. I, I think it can and, and I think it is happening because there are so many places where we are implementing behavioral sciences. Now, I got first second experience of that and working in public health England where the actual trials that we were running were turning into policies. But not everything is going very well here, right? So sometimes things are effective and sometimes they're not. So I want to talk about a new tool, essentially, that we might be able to use to increase the effectiveness. Now one of the important things to start with here is what behavioral science, a lot of behavioral science, is trying to do is look at correcting bias or using bias 
So we know that the desired behavior is at the top here, and bias is at the bottom corner here, where you're saying, okay, there's a deviation from the desired behavior. How can we use that to change behavior and move it to the top corner? But in 2016, uh, this, uh, this model came out from Kahneman. Um, and he was looking here at another quadrant or another part of this model that we're not really incorporating, which doesn't just look at bias, but it also looks at noise. On the 84 science interventions, there's a lot of hits and misses. Sometimes interventions work, and, and sometimes they don't. Now, one of the reasons for that is because situations in real-world policy contexts are often really diverse, they're really distinctive. And we can't, even if we measure the interventions well, and we can see that it's effective or not, we can't necessarily tell what's causing an effective, and what's the cause for an effective or an ineffective intervention. And one reason for that is because the data, or people, or behavior is both biased, but also noisy. Now, one of the things I'm interested in focusing on is seeing if we can create interventions that don't just address bias and overcome bias, but also address and overcome noise. And I'm proposing that there is data that's already available to us that with a little bit of work we might be able to use to do so. Now, before I came to the LSE, I worked at Public Health England's Behavior Insights team. So this is a, a behavioral unit a policy unit within inside behavioral, uh, with inside public health England, which is trying to uh, keep the population healthy. These are a couple of examples of interventions that we were running. And the big push here, as in many other behavioral science units right now, was to find personal information about individuals that you might be able to use to increase the effectiveness of interventions and reduce this noise. Now, on a population level, what really struck me is that there was actually very little information available on individuals. And that's maybe not surprising, because if you're trying to run population-level trials, you can't just go around people's houses and asking them hundreds of questions, right? You're going to need to use data that's already available about those people as proxies for how different interventions might work differently for different types of people. So we don't have personality traits here. We don't have uh, risk, time, and social preferences for the economists in the room. We have demographic information, so like age, gender, racial group, you might have previous shopping behavior if you're lucky, or maybe you'll know about someone's income level, but that's about it. Often you don't have very much more, more information about the individual. But I'm proposing that there is other information in that data set that we're currently just throwing away, that we're not making use of, and that is timestamps. And this might be really quite like it might seem quite silly, but there's one type of timestamp that we're using quite a lot already. We just don't call it one. We use age, right? So we know that age affects decision making and behavior. And there's quite a lot of scientists that are paying attention to age and how it might uh, determine whether people are more or less, less receptive, um, more or less likely to change in, under certain types of behavioral circumstances. So with that in mind, it's kind of interesting that we're not actually paying that much attention to other types of timeframes that are affecting our decision-making and behavior, like how does seasonal change affect our susceptibility to change, or how does the time of day affect our susceptibility to change, or the time of week for that matter. Now, that's interesting because intuitively we know that we feel different on different times of the day or different times of the week. Now we're all familiar with the Monday blues or the Friday feelings. Right? 
but we rarely think about how that feeling might be steering our decisions in different directions. But if we understand how time is shaping our decisions, then we, and we can see that that's happening systematically, then we can use timestamps that are already being collected in these data sets to improve our intervention accuracy and reduce this noise. Now, how can we do this? Well, we can't just look at every single one behavior and act across time. That would be very, very energy consuming. But we can, in the lab, look at key behavioral principles or elements or, or traits, like risk-taking or, or social preference, time preferences, which are predictive of real-world decision-making to see how they might fluctuate over time. Now, that's what I did. Here is an example of one of those tasks. It's called the balloon analog risk task, and it's predictive of real-world decision-making. Now, in a task like this, you uh, uh, can earn real money to blow up an on-screen balloon, which will at some point pop. And how people blow up these balloons will give them a risk score. You can then measure people on different times of the day or different times of the week, and then you can compare their risk scores across times of the day or different times of the week. So what we're doing in this case is, unlike in a normal lab task, so this is how most lab tasks work, is that you measure someone one time, and you measure lots of people at the same time. Now, in this case, what we're doing is we're measuring one person, but over a number of different time frames. And the difference between those two is actually a different type of method. One is called in measurement of inter-individual differences, and the other one is called intra-individual differences. So when we're talking about these demographic bits of information, we're talking about an inter-individual difference, something that describes you being different from someone else, and that is stable, so your gender, age, racial group, but also stable components of traits, so like personality. And we're talking about intra-individual differences, we're talking about how people might change over lifetimes, or how people might change over shorter time frames, like what I'm looking at here. Now the question is whether, just like with intra-individual differences, which we know can predict behavior, whether we see the same pattern for intra-individual but it might also explain away some of the noise that we see in data at the moment. And my data, data suggests that it can. So when we look at risk-taking, the risk task that we did in the lab, we see that risk tolerance is high on Monday, goes down on Tuesday and Wednesday, is lowest on Thursday, so there we become, become most cautious, and then on Friday, uh, our risk-taking increases again. <laughs> but the most important question here is whether that affects real-world decision-making and behavior. Now, I won't have time to go into much detail, but the short answer here is yes, it does. And it does a lot across a lot of different domains. So we see that it does in uh, voting behavior. I looked at Scottish independence and, uh, uh, Europe and uh, uh, Brexit data here. We see it in crime decisions, but we also see it in things like financial decision making and even healthcare. So what does this mean? Okay, so intra-individual fluctuations over time can be systematic and can predict real-world decision-making and behavior. And then really, what I've shown you just now is just one behavioral trait right, that we assume to be stable but isn't in one temporal, in one temporal dimension. Right? I'm just talking about weekdays here. So, just imagine what we could do if we look at this for lots of other types of traits and lots of other types of temporal dimensions. And we understand those fluctuations, then we can use it to understand what a timestamp 
can say about an individual and use it as an intra-individual proxy for behavior in the same way that we're using demographic information as a proxy. So that makes our data sets much more useful and our interventions much more reliable. So we can not just shape the universal policy making all over the world, but we can help you do it more reliably. Thank you. Very much yet, and thank you uh, to all the speakers for the excellent and inspiring talks. And also thank you for allowing uh, enough time for questions from the audience. Uh, I think we can open now up to the uh, question for the audience. We can collect a couple of questions or per time. Yeah. Thank, yeah, you. thank you for the presentations. I have a, qu a quick question about um, uh, you just mentioned about uh, some ineffectiveness of uh, behavioral science uh, in uh, policy making. What are those ineffectiveness? Uh, do you mind telling us a little bit about it? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Maybe uh, gentleman at the back. Yeah. Um, sure, I can answer that. Um, so. I mean, the effectiveness, I, so from my own experience, and I think a lot of people here will be able to give you different sets of experience, so this is by, by no means the only answer that could be given to this, is that um, often you use a kitchen sink approach when you're working in a policy behavioral science unit, so you don't really have the time to look at each individual behavioral principle and how it might affect decision making. That's often left to lab work. And then when you get to a behavioral unit, you look at combining all of those and seeing how well, like a one shot, right? You can write one or two letters, you get the chance to design supermarkets one time or five times maybe, but you need to use all the information from the literature and combine that to make it like an intervention as effective as possible. Now, m my experience that that sometimes it goes really well, right? Some, sometimes you get really lucky and the intervention sticks and often we don't know exactly which behavioral principle drives it, <laughs> but other times, it doesn't work, and that's a more problematic situation. So you've used all these principles at the same time. You don't know whether one principle is uh, making it better and the other one is making it worse, and therefore you don't see it like you see a flat line. Obviously, we hypothesize about that. One thing that I will say about the effectiveness, so I don't have any numbers for you. I'm not sure if anyone else would. I, I don't think there are any. But um, what, what I can say is what's very good about the behavioral sciences is that they're trying to monitor, they're trying to measure the effectiveness. And, and that's really powerful. That's a really powerful addition or change uh, to uh, social policy making uh, previous to, uh, to the behavioral sciences. Although I say that with a the caveat, there might be uh, a different response in the room. Yeah. Uh, Barbara, Liam, Adam, do you want to add anything? I can add something. So in my experience, when you're trying to help people uh, decide, um, not just differently, <laughs> leaving them free, but in a way that um, they themselves think it, it is better, um, but it causes big affect, big emotions, that's really, really where um, some of the policy interventions that I've seen fail. I'll give you an example. We were trying to figure out how to get people who are really compassionate they are volunteers in their societies, they have family with kids, they're really active, um, do more, enact more, uh, say donate more to UNICEF, to a particular fund that would benefit refugee um, kids in Syria. 
And we try to do that at the MIT Deep Empathy Lab. You can Google it. They have an amazing team of machine learning specialists who morph images that are familiar to you, could be this room, overlaying the features of um, known places like homes in Syria. And the idea is that if people don't donate, it's because they can't really realize how bad it is. And through this technology, we were able to change one thing but not another. And what we couldn't change was what we really wanted. What we could change was that people finally were able to feel empathy and as measured by the oneness that they felt with those um, cases that they've never seen, the refugee uh, Syrian kids, they, that, that, that worked, they did feel close, but they didn't donate more money. They didn't donate more money and we thought, how unsuccessful. But what has happened, because affect plays through your heads and you feel horrible, what those people were doing was to say, you know what, I don't bother with this, I'm going to go with my kid. And is that ineffective? With uh, Adam's point of view, actually, I would say it's actually effective because they were free to do what they wanted to do. It has been effective, but not as we intended it to be, which was to give more money to mm -hmm. the funds that would benefit them. Now, there are lots of reasons why this might happen. Paul Slovic has a beautiful blog called The Arithmetic of Compassion that explains why we don't act. We were hopeful. We got halfway through there. Paper never published. We called it Building Monsters Out of Clay. We didn't, we didn't publish it because it's no fact. <laughs> so uh, I have a question there and then a question there. Uh, thank you all for a great talk. Uh, my question is around data privacy, and I've just read uh, Shoshana Zuboff's Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it strikes me that a lot of data comes from um, people using their phones or perhaps agreeing to cookie policies. They don't necessarily are fully aware of um, what the result's going to be. I was interested, I think, in the last week or so, Facebook has said we're going to pay people to speak into our app. Um, I wonder what you think... Um, that will lead to? Um, could it perhaps limit this growth in data that provides behavioral insights or would it actually commodify it more and maybe be a long-term issue? Is that good or bad for policy? What do you want to do? Uh, I <coughs> defer to you. Um, it, it's an existential issue for the behavioral sciences in terms of uh, it'll define a lot of the way our status as a uh, sort of trusted source of expertise emerges in the public. I think if the public see us as a sort of cottage industry of Cambridge Analytica's mining into their personal data <laughs> in ways that they're uncomfortable with and in ways that are not transparent. Um, and we've seen cases with Facebook that the public were outraged by the way that the data was being used to manipulate them. I think the behavior sciences and their interaction with law and regulation tell us an awful lot about the limits of sort of consent mechanisms and how you would build more appropriate consent mechanisms in those areas. So I think in, in the sense to which that will help us shape this as a trusted endeavor, uh, I think that's going to be absolutely vital. I also hope that companies like Facebook start to see it as vital for them as well, because I mean ultimately it is an existential issue for them that if they're not trusted to act well uh, with people's data, uh, then it's a problem. So I have a lot I could say about that, but I think those are the two dimensions that I think behavioral science can become part of the problem and be associated with the problem, in which case there's a limited shelf life to a lot of what is going to happen here, or else we could be seen as part of a rebuilding process of sort of trust in choice architecture more broadly and, and regulation and how companies interact with that. 
have a question there and then you uh, thanks a lot for your talk. So my question is about how we can bring together the eth ethical concerns we talked about with what you just presented about using and understanding these timestamps to even more and more accurately manipulate people's behavior. So I'm, I'm thinking what is really the huge benefits of doing this and what are maybe also threats that maybe other presenters see and would this still go together with this notch plus approach by by Peter John as well, that this idea that people also accept and notice that they are, they are kind of manipulated and they might accept it to a certain uh, extent, would they still do this if I know that I'm even more like monitored and then influenced in certain times of the day's days? Uh, is that still something people might want to accept if they are aware of? So, so you're, I'm not completely sure. So your question is, is it is it more acceptable as as our variables are getting better at predicting behavior? Does it does it the acceptability reduce? No, manipulating behavior. Also, when we found out that now Fridays it just works better. Um, I mean, this. I think it starts with the premise that that what behavioral scientists are doing are is manipulating behavior. So I think I'll start by addressing that. Um, so I'm going to speak from a, from the public policy work that I did when I worked internally. G generally, like an, an organization like Public Health England is we we collectively as a as a country have decided that we need an agency that protects the, the a person's health, right? And a lot of funding goes into sending out uh, uh, marketing, sending out information to people. And what a behavioral science unit does is often think about how do we make sure that this information is optimized so that people understand it the best, so that it has most is most likely to reach the person. Um, you can also, in this case, I guess if you want to incorporate time, think about when are you most likely to be able to reach information to that person. Um, another way to... Uh, so, so what I'm saying is that information is already going out, right? and we're just trying to make it as best as possible. I think in an organization like Public Health England, you'd also mostly focus on making sure that your interventions that are already going out don't increase inequality between people. Public Health England is trying to make sure that it's reducing inequality. So I, I think an organization like Public Health England is manipulating people generally, and I don't think the Behavior Insights team is adding or or doing more or less to that. It's, it's one of the public health services um, that, that is trying to make sure that, that we keep healthy. I, I don't think behavioral sciences generally do, uh, do a lot of manipulating if it's within a policy unit because we have to be very careful in where we can and cannot uh, apply these methods. So it's mostly about increasing effectiveness. Yeah. I just have one I think to add to that, which is um, Partly has got to do with issues of legitimacy. So I think in, uh, Jeff made a very eloquent case that like, Public Health England is a legitimate body to, to do yeah. some of this type of stuff. It has a reason to do it. And, and most people would have what you call a common shared idea of it. Most people would kind of say, well, it's actually fair enough that a public health body would try to do this type of stuff. I think I've talked to my colleague David Farrell about this idea of citizens' assemblies or citizens' juries maybe being useful in this case. So in health, we have a lot of concepts around patient involvement more generally, but I think citizen involvement in some of this could be very helpful yeah. in the sense that these are all very complicated issues. 
and, and as we're rolling out behavioural insights, I think having citizens groups around that so that people can tease through some of these issues that they might be concerned about, and we've got a very transparent way of doing it, could actually sort out between, I think, quite benign and quite useful applications of it and stuff where people will go, okay, hang on, I might think that's good, but in terms of utility, but I don't like you doing it because I think it's creepy. Um, uh, and I think in, in, in Jet's case, you know, you could imagine doing a citizens group where people would actually go, well, it's actually brilliant that there's somebody doing this. It's, it's a good use of taxpayers' money. It's helping public health. And actually, the, it, at Public Health England, they do have citizen groups. Mm -hmm. They do have citizen groups checking whether interventions are okay or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think other, other behavioral units have so too. Yeah. Take a question here. Yeah. So my question is, do you with, uh, to what extent would you as a behavioral scientist actually sort of put into practice what you learn from the behavioral sciences when it actually might clash with your fundamental beliefs? <coughs> so for example, we know that there's something called a heuristic, availability heuristic, right? So the more you actually talk about something, the more people believe that to be true. So for example, the standard example is in the U.S., survey after survey shows that more people believe there are more murders than suicides because everybody talks about murders, but nobody talks about suicides. So, but in fact, the number of suicides is far, far exceeds the number of murders. So now like that, if you ask, you know, Barbara, if you look at the virus situation now, if you ask people whether Ebola has been contained, they'll say yes. But last year, 3,000 people died of Ebola. And Ebola is about 70% yeah. mortality rate. So to the extent that you can control information, yeah. then you might actually diffuse the spread of some people and get less panicked. But then that goes fundamentally against what you believe in the freedom of the press, in terms of freedom of expression, etc. So to what extent do behavioral scientists actually balance the two? I, I can, I can um, so this is a super important point about the role of media here. There's a great study which was just a, not with real people, but it was a simulation. Um, recently, they found that um, in order to control stuff like availability heuristic and they, um, in particular the fact that sometimes, I mean, imagine the case where, like in the case of H1N1, even in the case of a COVID-19, um, we will have a, a vaccine soon, maybe not in 18 months or sooner, it will all be contained and it will become common, like the influenza right now, which uh, in some seasons is actually more or as, li as likely to cause a death as, as coronavirus now. Now, if that happens, then what happens is that the high-risk populations will have to take the vaccine against the thing. It could be the flu, it could be Ebola, it could be coronavirus. What happens normally is that after this whole thing, because people are not talking about it, or there are information about the wrong stuff about the vaccine, people start to spread fake news, um, and they start to uh, not comply with health advice. Now that's even riskier. What happens, what the simulations I found is that what you need to have is that at least 20% of the population has to be immune from fake news. At least 20% means that you do not share bad advice, you do not share stuff that you don't believe, uh, you don't believe it actually is good but also doesn't comply. If that happens, that's already good. The other thing you can do is that there has to be a lot of also good news. For instance, in the case of the coronavirus now, we only hear about the next test uh, that has been run, the next positive case. I know that as of last night, there's a first case of Amazon employee in Seattle that has tested positive. 
So by one case. Now, what we instead need to start circulating, and the media isn't circulating, is the increasing rates of cure rate and recovery rate. We hear about people being isolated, not going back to school, but we have also stories that I had to Google furiously, it's very hard to find, about families reuniting. Uh, and, and that's not there. We need to correct and we need to decide. So I think now for what you're pointing at is that we need to decide to act differently. I was, my brother-in-law has been kicked back from uh, Jordan, from Israel last week, uh, when he was off on his yearly tracking thing, because he had an Italian passport. It was before the travel ban was actually there. And the article was there. My family sent it, and I just said, stop circulating this stuff, because it creates, it creates what we call social amplification of risk. It creates hatred, stigma. I mean, why are you circulating this on WhatsApp? Let's not do it. And they changed the article then to just add something like, but we had a great time in Israel nonetheless, and they had lots of pictures of Israel. Um, I think we need to do more um, to, be, to stop the news that are wrong and not circulate them. There's a great website called something like What Is It Really That We Die For that shows what are the real causes of death, and then how often instead we think we're going to die uh, as said by The Guardian, by The Times, and by Google searches. We don't correlate at all. But we, we are the ones searching. We are the ones sharing. I would say start, start, start sharing love, but not you know, fake news. That's a very long speech. I'm talking about Italian. Sorry, I will not talk anymore. We have time for only a quick question, final question, yeah. Um, and then we, we will wrap up, yeah. Um, just a question on ethics. So there was a, there's a lot spoken about ethics in terms of public policy and the application of ethics to public policy. Um, there was even a chart shown about the public nudge units that are set up around the world. Um, it feels although it feels though the commercial application of behavioral insights and the amount of commercial units that are set up in behavioral economics and behavioral insights is much larger than the public application. However, it feels that way. It might not be fundamentally true. But, um, However, there isn't much research done on the ethical applications and a fundamental framework, framework for ethical applications on the commercial or the private side. Um, I also feel, uh, do you have any thoughts on why that is and do you think behavioral science should focus on the private application of behavioral insights and how it can be done responsibly and ethically? Thank you. I feel bad because uh, Barbara's last point was that we should share love. I thought that would have been a nice <laughs> way to finish. Love, uh, not not uh, bad news. But, uh, but in terms of the, the commercial applications, uh, somebody uh, has put together a database about 300 companies who've been developing capacities in, in the area. Uh, a lot of what's happening in the private sector is obviously proprietary, so you often learn about it with a, with, a, with a lag that's greater than what you learn about in the public sector. So knowing about it is there's problems of knowledge, figuring out what actually folks are doing. I think there's two things. There's one is how behavioural science will go into uh, the private sector and then being aware of both the positives of that and the negatives of it. And there's some great papers. I mean, I really recommend Bob and Pildy's work on uh, using behavioural science as a tool to understand the, the sort of ethical issues around uh, particularly financial companies working in, the, in, these, uh, in these spaces. Um, so again, I could talk a lot about it, but uh, um, it's, uh, it's an area that's increasingly companies are setting up units in it. Some of it is stuff they already knew, some of it is stuff they're learning, some of, some of it is stuff that they're interacting with other agencies they have, like, or other capacities that they have. Uh, it, it's going to be a real thing in, 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 throughout the next couple of decades, so um, uh, I'll just take your point, basically, and say that we definitely need to uh, have greater sort of public discussion of the role of, of these areas in, in the private sector.
Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh, 7 o'clock, so it's a good time to uh, stop. Uh, thank you very much for all of you, and thank you very much.